From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 246 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, John Sicari. John, how are you today? Doing well. Loving that we're at part three with this. This was a a wonderful dive. This was. This was a lot of fun. Brought back good memories of Walt and watching him on television every Sunday. So, and this is it. We are going to wind up our story with this episode. So, in our previous two episodes, we've been talking about Walt Disney's early years in television, which include what prompted his venture into television, the start of his first series on ABC, Walt Disney's Disneyland, and his falling out with ABC, which led Walt and Roy to selling the show to NBC. The new show was titled Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, to emphasize it would now be broadcast in color. And a new character was introduced, Professor Ludwig von Drake, so viewers would know this was a completely new show. Now, John, can you guess why Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket were the primary Disney characters appearing on Walt Disney's Disneyland? Okay. I haven't, I guess, but I'm going to, I know I'm going to be wrong because I don't know the time with movies and stuff right now. Were Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket upcoming features that he was planning, or were they already out? Were they oh, already they were known? already out. Okay, so yeah, no, I don't know yeah. why they would use those two. It was Roy's decision because Roy was concerned the show might fail, and he did not want their top properties like Mickey Mouse, <sighs> Minnie, and Donald associated. <sighs> with the show in case it failed. So they used their second tier characters for the television show, which was Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket. Dopey was in it a bit, but um, yeah, but no, didn't have Mickey and Minnie. Now, of course, when the show was a success, Wonderful World of Color, they all made routine appearances, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, everybody. So on there. So, but that was interesting. But yeah, those those were the primary characters of the shows. And I think that's also probably why they're primary characters in, in the park, especially Disneyland. But why Tinkerbell flew over the castle, why Jiminy Cricket was the narrator for many um, firework displays and all that. So, um, so wow. yeah, so it's interesting. So Probably smart. Yeah, I think going out, Roy was, Roy was cautious, you know, so... As part of the deal with NBC, the network had the right of first refusal for any other Disney-produced series, similar to the deal they had with ABC. Over the years, the studio proposed several ideas to NBC. Walt proposed a series to NBC titled Jimmy Dale, alias the Gray Seal, 
which was based on a fictional character in a book series authored by Frank Lucius Packard. Many of the stories were serialized in various magazines before being published as novels. These stories were so popular that in 1917, a 16-chapter silent movie serial was released to theaters. Walt was a fan of these stories as a boy and would act them out with his friend Walter Pfeiffer. In 1950, Walt bought the film rights to the books. In an interview with Walt's official biographer, Bob Thomas, Don Tatum had this to say about Walt's purchase of these stories. He, meaning Walt, also used to talk about, he loved the Grey Seal stories. Do you ever remember that? Jimmy Dale, alias the Grey Seal. He used to compose that as a television show. The Grey Seal was really an amateur private eye who lived in Boston. His name was Jimmy Dale, and Walt used to act them out all the time. Jimmy Dale was a disguise artist. In every story, he'd put on a different disguise and find the criminal. And if he didn't find the criminal, he prevented someone from committing a crime. And his trademark was a gray seal pasted somewhere. Walt had bought all these books. There were a number of them, and he owned all the rights to them. A proposal for the series was written and presented to NBC, but the network executives thought it was simply too different from what the public had come to expect from Walt Disney, and the project was dropped. I think it could have been an interesting series. It it does seem very different, though. It's not what I would have expected out of World of Color, Walt Walt Disney. Yeah, well, not back in those days, although it would have been a separate series. but um, Oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, and I know some of those books are still available. And I was researching this; I saw they were on Amazon, so they're still oh. out there. So, another project that was discussed was a series based on John Steinbeck's book. Tra- Ste- I should say Steinbeck's book, "Travels with Charlie." The series would follow the book and told the story of a man and his dog on their travels and the people they met along the way. DuPont was interested in sponsoring the series. So Walt began negotiations with DuPont and NBC. Don Tatum thought the timing wasn't right for the series. NBC was very interested in the series and actively promoted the discussions. Walt Disney and John Steinbeck met to discuss the series, and together they decided the series wouldn't work, and the idea came to an end. I don't know, I think that's another one that I would have loved to have seen a series. And I just can't believe that these creative minds couldn't make that work. I wish I could hear those conversations. I know. That was one because, you know, did did Walt have – I mean, what was it that came to an right, impasse where right. they thought it wasn't sustainable? Exactly. Something broke that camel's back. What straw did it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they thought that, you know, it was it was too limited, that it couldn't run – you know, for two, three, four seasons. Could be. I don't know. At the start of each television season, the networks would agree on a starting week, and all the new shows and new episodes of returning shows would be announced in a very controlled method. Remember when that was a, that was a big deal, remember, in, in the fall, September, when the networks all announced and rolled out their new shows? Yes, All the time, yes. Not so much anymore. No. Now, for the 1963-64 season, Walt decided not to go along with this system 
and launched his show one week before everyone else with a proven winner, Davy Crockett Indian Fighter. Rather than admit they broke the rules, NBC listed the episode as the final episode of the 1962-63 season, rather than the first episode of the 1963-64 season. Whatever it might have been, the desired effect was achieved. Tired of summer reruns, audiences tuned in to the three-part miniseries in huge numbers. Walt and his show were off to a great start that year. Wow. Seeing there was still interest in Davy Crockett's stories, there was some discussion of producing new Crockett stories. Fess Parker contacted Walt and proposed a new series or film. But after his experience with ABC, Walt wasn't interested in doing any more westerns. Fess Parker would go on to star in a Daniel Boone series for NBC that aired from 1964 to 1970. Did you watch that series, John? You know, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett are the same person in my mind. I, <laughs> I can't separate them at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the Dan- I watched the Daniel Boone series when I was when I was a boy, and when I read up on Daniel Boone, I realized there was very little fact in the in the Daniel Boone <laughs> series. It was just a stories, you know, adventure western stories that had a Daniel Boone in them. If I so. asked you what the big difference between Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone was, can you recall? Um Daniel Boone ha- his family was more prominent in the series. And he was more of a yeah, well he didn't wear a coonskin cap. <laughs> Okay. But you're right. I mean, they they were both, you know, rugged mountain men kind of characters, sort of had adventures, traveled the West, you know. So, yeah, there, there, are, there are a lot of similarities there. I'm sure having the same actor confused me as a kid also. Oh, yeah. I, I, it probably confused a lot of people. So, By the mid-1960s, Wonderful World of Color had firmly established itself as a top 20 series. Walt's segments became as anticipated as the show content, whether it be a simple introduction from Walt, his interaction with animals or with the cartoon characters featured on the episode, or hosting a show from Disneyland, his warm and friendly manner made each episode compelling. During this time, a number of multi-part episodes and specials made especially for the series were produced. An especially popular miniseries was the three-part 1964 miniseries, The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which was released to U.S. theaters as Dr. Sin, alias The Scarecrow, 12 years after its initial television airing and European theatrical release. Based on a series of novels, it started Patrick McGowan in the title role as English vicar Dr. Sin, who is a respectable clergyman by day who secretly assumes the identity of the mysterious scarecrow of Romney Marsh at night. Now, this is a mix of Robin Hood and Zero. The masked scarecrow is a local hero to the oppressed people of Dimmerch Parish on the coast of England, where the king has levied heavy taxes on the locals. Dressed as a scarecrow, Dr. Sin leads the 
a small army of other masked men who deal in smuggled and stolen goods, who use the revenue to keep their families fed. No one knows the secret identity of the Scarecrow except for two of his trusted sidekicks. Did you ever watch this? Because it's been released on physical media and all that. I have not seen this. This is really good. This is a fun episode. It's on the Disney Treasures series. Okay. And you can probably still get it online and all that, but it's a lot of fun. So, um, So anyway, so worth watching. A tradition originating on ABC's Walt Disney Presents in 1958 and continued in Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color was the animated Christmas special From All of Us to All of You, which returned with a new installment in 1963. Hosted by Jiminy Cricket, along with Mickey Mouse and Tinker Bell, the holiday episode combined newly produced animation with clips from vintage animated Disney shorts and feature films presented to the viewer as Christmas cards from the various characters starring in each one. Each year's airing of the Christmas episode would include preview footage of the studio's new or upcoming feature films. I look forward to this every year. Me too. I remember the song. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, yeah. The chimney yeah. would sing from all of yeah. us to all of you. Very Merry Christmas. Yeah. You know, this still plays in the Scandinavian countries every year. Really? Yep. And they update it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I have a, a friend, he and his wife recently passed. Um, they, they had relatives, um, children that lived there. I can't remember which country, if it was Sweden. Or Scandinavian area, and yeah, they would always visit at Christmas time to see their grandchildren and and all that. And they watched it; it would air Christmas Day. I love so. that. I wish we would keep stuff like that. I know. I think it would be a huge hit. I do too. It's on YouTube. Somebody's put together as much of it as they can, and um, and I think it's. I forget what to, I, I think it shows like Sword in the Stone or something is the upcoming film. So I think it's one of the last installments and it's, um, it's good. It, it's fun. I watch it every year on YouTube. That's great. So. A very popular and exciting episode was 1964's Disneyland Goes to the World's Fair, in which Walt gives viewers a preview of the four attractions the studio is creating for the World's Fair how audio animatronics work, and the Imagineers behind the attractions before taking us to the World's Fair and a ride-through of It's a Small World. And it concludes with a display of the fair's fountains and fireworks. And this is, this is considered one of the best episodes of the series. And I talked about it in my 60 Years of Disneyland series. And this is also available on physical media as well. And a lot of fun. And again, it's one of those behind-the-scenes episodes that people just ate up and all that. And I always wished my parents had taken me to the World's Fair, but for us, that was a, that was a long trip. You know, <laughs> my parents were together for 17 years. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ma, why did you divorce my dad? And the one thing – I know she's joking. There's a lot more to it. But she says he never took me to the World's Fair, and they lived in New York. So I don't know why he didn't take her, but he didn't. And she talks about that. She She's not with us anymore. But she talked about it like 
to her dying day. That really bothered her. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) So, highlights for season 11 included a celebration of Disneyland's 10th anniversary, which could be a sequel to the Disneyland Goes to the World's Fair episode, as it begins with Walt Disney showing viewers and Disneyland ambassador Julie Rhyme plans for upcoming attractions, including It's a Small World, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Haunted Mansion, along with a model of the soon-to-be-built Plaza Inn restaurant. In Disneyland, the Disney characters celebrate Disneyland's 10-cennial, with a show in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle and a parade put on by a local high school band and cheerleaders. Next, Walt describes a brief history of the construction of the park, followed by a tour of some of the attractions at the time, including Matterhorn bobsleds, Jungle Cruise, the Flying Saucers, the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, and the Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. The climax of the episode is a Dixieland band on the Mark Twain Riverboat as part of the nighttime um, Dixieland at Disneyland celebration. Celebrities featured included Haley Mills and John Mills, Louis Armstrong, and the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Again, this is also on physical media, a great episode. This is, brings back some memories because this is the Disneyland I remember as a boy. Yeah, when we get into the episodes, I don't know for sure, but I think this is the episode that I have in mind. I mm-hmm. think. Not certain. When I describe it to you, you let me know. And this is the year I was hired to by Disney. It was for Ooh. the 10th anniversary. So this this is why this is close to my heart in here. But um it has some of my favorite attractions, the flying saucers. The always seem to break down. And then mine what was train the mine through, train. What is that? Through Nature's Wonderland? What is that? That is where um where uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railway and Galaxy's Edge is today. It it was the largest attraction in the park. It was based on the True Life Adventure series, the ones that were based on North America. And you rode through it and you there were audio animatronic or, or some were just animatronic animals. Yeah, you know, like Bear Country, um, Beaver Country, Beaver Valley you went through. When you walk on Big Thunder Valley Trail, the um that goes between Frontierland and Fantasyland. You're walking through the Beaver Beaver Valley, wow. the old Beaver Valley, and uh, I loved it. There were rainbow caverns where um, it was all luminescent, and there's a homage to it in both ver- in all the versions of Big Thunder Mountain Railway. The dark caverns wow. where they sort of the waters sort of glow, but this these were huge and all that and. Um, so it's it was it was just a wonderful little ride. Well, although it was big, you know, they had a great narration as you went through that, that was very humorous and, and all that. And then on top of all that, you had the uh, in the same area you had the stagecoach running, you had the pack mules that you could ride going through it, and you had. Um, there, there was one other. There was one other. Oh, stagecoaches were also running all through there as well that's at amazing. one time. So that's why Frontierland was so cool because it seemed like it never ended; just went on and on forever. So, 
Anyway, and I got and I and my love for Dixieland was due to going to Disneyland when they had in the summers at night they would have these Dixieland bands. And these are big bands. These are famous people that would perform like at Carnation Plaza Gardens mainly, and on the uh, and then before Fantasmic, the Mark Twain went around Rivers of America at night, and they would have a jazz band on the Mark Twain as well in the evenings. It was just really cool. Very magical. That's awesome. Uh, A miniseries in 1965-66 for the series 12th season was the legend of young Dick Turpin, who is one of England's most famous outlaws starring David Weston and George Cole tells the story of a young Dick Turpin who is caught poaching for food when he, and when he is unable to pay the fine, the Lord of the Manor confiscates all his possessions. After rescuing his horse, Black Bess, Dick escapes to London's underworld and gets involved with a gang of thieves. I don't remember this one. I know the name Dick Turpin. But, I've heard um, the name, yeah. That's yeah, it. because he's like even referred to like in, in um Dickens novels and stuff. So um I know I've I've heard of him. So when the nineteen sixty-six sixty-seven season began, Walt was focused on his Florida project and less involved with television. Unknown to everyone except his immediate family, Walt's health was failing. After checking into St. Joseph's Hospital across the street from his studio, it was discovered that Walt had lung cancer attributed to decades of smoking cigarettes. Although one lung was removed, the cancer had spread. The most optimistic prognosis had Walt living a couple of years. Just a few weeks after the surgery, Walt passed on December 15, 1966. The studio and the world was shocked because there had been no hint that Walt was seriously ill. The studio had lost its leader. In spite of all the innovations, planning, visions, and dreams of Walt, one thing he had never planned for was what would happen to his company after his passing. Roy stepped up and postponed his retirement to take on the Florida Project. Walt had always been the public face and voice of the company, and Roy never considered himself to be a replacement in this role. The 14th episode of The Wonderful World of Color was broadcast three days after Walt's passing. Titled Disneyland Around the Seasons, it was preceded by a memorial tribute from Dick Van Dyke and news anchor Chet Huntley. Walter pre-recorded the introduction, and in this episode, he took viewers on a tour of Disneyland and reviews the first year of Disneyland's second decade whilst pointing out some of the newest additions to the park, including New Orleans Square, It's a Small World, and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. He also shows off some holiday traditions, such as the Fantasy on Parade and the Nighttime Candlelight Processional. The final scene of Disneyland around the season shows Walt as he tells us to stay tuned for a peek at the next program. Viewing this episode a short time after his passing that season was a solemn experience for the audience. Walt had pre-recorded several introductions, and they were all aired with their episodes. I remember that. I remember that. And the... um, 
Disneyland Around the Seasons again is available. I think in the Disney Treasures series, I think it's called Walt Disney, your host. I think it might be in that one, but there's also a Disneyland treasure series. And um, I get confused what's in each one, but they don't have the Dick Van Dyke, Chet Hutley, um, you know, um, memorial tribute in there. They just have the regular episode in that. The studio began a search for someone to host the 1967-68 season. And this search was even more difficult than when they had searched for a host for the Disneyland series, because any new host would now be compared to Walt. Studio executives argued over the benefits of a new host because there was no one who would be so closely identified with the studio as Walt. NBC thought the answer was to hire someone like Danny Kaye to host the series. After many lengthy discussions, studio executives believed there was no one who could continue Walt's show as the host. It was decided to not replace Walt with a new host, with the understanding that there may be the occasional episode requiring a special introduction. After the decision was made, not to hire a new host. This is how the studio announced this change to prospective advertisers. The Wonderful World of Color will have a new format for introducing the weekly absence of Walt, whose emceeing did so very much to put set buying and color viewing into the big profit column. Ten new lead-ins will give a new pace and variety to the program, Each will be one minute of quick scenes, cuts, kaleidoscoping, Disney motion pictures, television, the Florida Project, Disneyland, the entire Disney world, plus random candid cuts of Walt himself. After routinely being in the list of top 20 shows each year, a significant ratings drop occurred in the 1967-68 and 1968-69 seasons. Audiences missed Walt, and this posed a challenge for the studio, and it was forced to make a hard decision. To reach a wider audience and maximize the profits that would offer, the entire format of the anthology series would have to be changed or a new series developed. There was a reluctance by some within the studio to change Walt's show because it had become an American institution. Although the ratings were not as impressive, the show still kept the Disney name in the hearts and minds of audiences. Also, since the series was released overseas, this revenue allowed the studio to continue to turn a profit, even with the rising costs of production. So the decision was made to leave Walt's show as is and to develop a new television series. NBC expressed interest in broadcasting another 30-minute Disney series. So work began in earnest on development of a new series. One of the first decisions was that rather than taking the risk of developing a completely new series, they should capitalize on content from a successful theatrical release or television miniseries. The strongest candidate was a dramatic series based on the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Also considered was a contemporary family situation comedy based on the absent-minded professor, the shaggy dog, or the Merlin Jones films. 
The idea of developing a second television series was eventually dropped because the same executives who would work on a new series were also working on the massive Walt Disney World project and Disneyland Park operations. Test audiences proved there was still interest in the anthology series, with special interest in shows about animals. So the studio produced more animal-themed episodes, both new productions and serialized episodes of theatrical releases like The Ugly Dashund, Those Calloways, and Charlie the Lonesome Cougar. This paid off, and the series rose to being the ninth top-rated series. Another change to the series was the title. In season 16 for the 1969-70 season, the title was changed to The Wonderful World of Disney. So, John, do you remember the transition from Walt to No Host? No, because I was born in 71. Okay. but So I remember The Wonderful World of Disney. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Wonderful World of Color, though, was – it was either rerunning – because I remember my father showing that to me also. So I must have seen it some. They must have rerun Color while Wonderful World of Disney was going on. I know they pulled episodes from it every once in a while. So I remember my dad showing me uh, Tinkerbell with her wand and the castle. And I remember that was a big deal. He was explaining the color scenario. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, somehow I was – yeah. Yeah, but the show wasn't – of course, it wasn't the same without Walt. Yeah, it was, I could imagine. Yeah, it was It was definitely – it felt, I don't know, hollow or empty a bit. Yeah. So. A highlight of this season was the 20th episode, Disneyland Showtime, in which the Osmond brothers, accompanied by Kurt Russell and E.J. Peeker, had come to Disneyland to perform at a show being held there. But Donnie and Jay go off to explore the park. Worried that they will miss the performance, the rest of the cast go to try to find them before they miss the show. They also visit the park's then-newest attraction, the Haunted Mansion. I remember this vividly. This you know, one. I this do was remember. Just such Kurt, a wasn't Kurt Russell in that? Yeah, he was. He sort okay, of was yeah, the narra- yeah. narrator of it. Yeah. Yeah. So... But And this was the first episode from Disneyland without a real host. The closest thing this episode had to a host was Kurt Russell, who gives the viewers an inside look at the Haunted Mansion. So, Unfortunately, the ratings began to slip again. The studio was filming entire seasons well in advance of their air dates, so it was impossible to quickly change programming to adjust to public tastes and interests. In an effort to counter this in the 1970-71 season, more theatrical releases were scheduled to be broadcast because they could be added or dropped quickly. This resulted in an increase in ratings. Disney executives were quick to say this was due to their exceptional <laughs> programming. Could be argued this is also due to its competition. ABC was airing The Ed Sullivan Show and CBS The Jim Neighbors Show. Both were variety shows, and some viewers may have wanted a change of pace. Like I, I think I said a couple episodes back, yeah, with my, the Ed Sullivan show was in big competition with the Disney show in my house. because so my parents really liked the Ed Sullivan show. And I always liked it because they had this little puppet mouse called Topo Gijo. Yes, and I remember I, him. Topo I Gijo. loved it when he was on. Oh, Eddie. I can't believe. 
There was a Jim Neighbors hour. I'm kind of shocked at that. Yeah, I don't. I, think don't, I only thought Jim Neighbors was in like the Croft Superstar stuff that I used to watch. Yeah, no, yeah, and it was of course it, it was highlighted by his singing. I think we because he had an amazing voice, and so I think I think we only watched it like once or twice. But between you know the wonderful world of Disney or color, whatever it was. <laughs> At the time, and Ed Sullivan, we just never got around the chimney neighbors. It didn't last long. So, in the 1972-73 season, the Wonderful World of Disney was NBC's fourth-rated series, and was in the Nielsen's top ten for four weeks. With the success, NBC renewed the series for the 1975-76 season and exercised their options for the 1976-77 and 1977-78 seasons. No other series had ever received a similar guarantee. However, a big change was about to happen to the series. The Federal Trade Commission mandated that networks broadcast a family hour of programming. After 15 seasons of being in the 7.30 p.m. time slot, NBC moved The Wonderful World of Disney, where it would compete with CBS's new show, 60 Minutes. The ratings for Wonderful World of Disney were devastated by 60 Minutes, to the surprise of Disney executives. To combat this ratings disaster, the studio announced changes to the series for 1977-78 season, which included the programming of more theatrical films. Despite this, ratings continued downwards. Ron Miller, who was a film and television producer for the studio at this time, said this was, quote, very discouraging, very disappointing, unquote. He went on to say, quote, we set out this year to take the Hardy Boys, and that was the show ABC was airing against Disney in the same time slot, and we haven't done it. Maybe it's the charisma of young Sean Cassidy, or maybe we've come become complacent, unquote. It was tough to compete with the Hardy Boys. Yeah, 60 Minutes was good, too. I mean, yeah. that was, yeah. yeah. My, um... When I was a boy, I read every single Hardy Boys book. I loved that series. So I definitely had some of them, not the whole series, but I've read I read some of them. Yeah, that no, Nancy I, Drew, they seemed to me the same. Weren't they like together sometimes? Nancy I Drew think, and Hardy Boys. I think in the TV show they were okay. Yeah. So I think didn't they combine it? It was like the Hardy Boys I, Nancy Drew Hour or something. I I do think that sounds somewhat familiar. Yeah, yeah. And by this time, I I I don't know. I didn't get into that this Hardy Boys series that much. I think because I I was older at that point. So in an effort to show that they were responding to this decline in ratings, the studio announced for some reason for some changes for the nineteen seventy nine eighty season. For this 26th season, the series title would be changed to Disney's Wonderful World. The series would return to its original format, with each week having a different theme. Rather than the themes revolving around the realms of Disneyland, they would feature Animation Night, Fantasy Night, Adventure Night, and Comedy Night. Little else changed in the series. The studio continued to rely heavily on broadcasting theatrical releases and reruns of past shows. 
10 new shows were scheduled with some having two parts. This was not enough of a change for audiences and the ratings continued to fall. After 18 years with NBC, the relationship was not going well. The network felt this decline in ratings was hurting their other Sunday night shows and the network in general. In a July 14, 1979 article in the Boston Globe, NBC executives were quoted as saying that they were tired of the Disney organization's arrogance, hostility to press questions, unwillingness to air its best-known films on television, even for a one-time showing, and their contempt for television as a minor source of revenue compared to their theme parks and real estate. Wow. That's quite the quite the statement. Yeah, that's quite a change. So You've had success with somebody for 18 years, and just because you haven't found the right secret formula right now, that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I, I'm in, I think in entertainment, it can turn on a dime. You're only as true, good as your true. last season. Your last performance, last season, yes, you are right. <clears throat> the studio refused to publicly acknowledge there was any friction between themselves and NBC. But in February 1980, studio executives acknowledged the series was in serious danger of being canceled. Ratings had increased by only 4% for the 1979-80 season, despite the studio's best efforts. The 1980-81 season had some good episodes, including a celebration of Disneyland's 25th anniversary. Filmed throughout Disneyland, viewers followed the story of a young boy, played by Adam Rich, on his first ever trip to the happiest place on Earth. While there, he encounters many interesting characters, all played by Danny Kaye, <laughs> who tell him various stories about the park's history. Musical numbers by Donny Osmond, Michael Jackson, and Danny Kaye, as well as group sing-alongs that included many Disney cast members, including Wally Bogue, along with Buddy Ebsen, Annette Funicello, and many guest stars. I remember this. I recorded this. I, by this time, had... A VHS recorder, VCR. Really? I recorded on tape. I had it for years until one of the kids recorded over it. And oh. I played this for the kids. Now, they knew <laughs> Michael Jackson post his many surgeries. This was young Michael Jackson. Oh. When, and, and he sang, When You Wish Upon a Star, standing by the moat in front of Sleeping Bee Castle. And I said, when I said, oh, here's Michael Jackson. And they, and they said, well, who's that? Because they didn't recognize him at all. I can see that. I yeah. can see that. So, and I, I just burst out laughing because it never occurred to me, you know, that they I like that more. Danny K. I like that Danny K. played different characters. Yeah. That just seems funny to me. I like that. And Donny Osmond, he's, he's a staple at that time, too. Yeah. I remember – uh, one bad apple. Don't spoil a whole bunch of girls. That was the record that I listened to. Growing <laughs> up. I mean, constantly. I mm-hmm. my sister needed to shut it off. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think was this the time when he and his sister had the television show, the variety show. I don't remember when that was. I I think they were older, but I'm not certain. But Danny Kay was a staple for for Disney television specials. I mean, when they had the opening, was it was it Epcot? Was that Danny Oh, yes, Kay? yes, yes. He was there too, was yes. Danny Kay, yeah. With Drew Barrymore. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Another episode featured the reunion of the original Mouseketeers. 
Hosted by Annette Funicello, it featured 31 of the 39 original Mouseketeers. Kim Considine from the Spin and Marty serial was a guest to talk about the Mickey Mouse Club serials and to receive his honorary Mickey Mouse Club ears. Paul Williams um, was the narrator, singer, and comic relief. He performs Bruce Johnston's Disney Girls and a ditty about Walt Disney. Short retrospectives were done on Roy Williams and Jimmy Dodd, and at the end, Paul Williams received his ears. Aww. One of my favorite episodes of this season was Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, based on the book of the same name by two of Walt's nine old men, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. Haley Mills returns to the Walt Disney Studio for a look at the techniques of animated film production, featuring The Fox and the Hound with various veteran Disney animators illustrating these techniques. Haley visits the archives, learns how models are made for the animators, and is shown the value of the selection of the right actors to provide the voices. She also attends a recording session with Pearl Bailey. This episode featured the announcement of the animated feature film, The Black Cauldron, which was released in 1985, and through the use of conceptual paintings for the film. Whilst Haley Mills says that she will provide the voice of, oh, I don't know how you pronounce this, Island Wee? Uh, I think it's Ellen Wee. Ellen Ellen Wee. And I've seen it recently again, The Black Cauldron. Yeah. Um, Well, the role ended up going to Susan Sheridan. (laughs) (gasps) So I don't know what happened in negotiations in there. But I remember this because I I really like The Fox and the Hound. And yes, I'm watching the Disney animated features in order, and I'm up to the Fox and the Hound right now. So I'm looking forward to watching. There's that. certain parts in the Fox and the Hound where you see the pencil sketches more than any other film. Yeah, and I kind of like it. I think it adds to the style. Yeah, yeah. My very first cat I owned was named Todd, and that was after um ah. Fox and the Hound. During this season, NBC preempted the series eight times. So it was no surprise when NBC announced its cancellation. The studio held negotiations with CBS and ABC to find a new home for the anthology series and maintain a television presence. CBS signed on to air the series for the 1981-82 season. And Donald Grant, president of CBS Entertainment, announced, We are pleased to be opening up this relationship with a studio that has long been recognized as the world's leading producer of family entertainment. Ron Miller, now president of Walt Disney Productions, told reporters, We're excited about joining with CBS in this relationship and believe it will bring Disney to new heights in television programming. I always love how there's also pop positive yeah. when. I, I must assume by now that CBS's color wheel was thrown away and real color <laughs> is, is now there. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they're in the modern age now of color. Remember how we didn't like CBS all of a sudden now we're <laughs> so excited about them. <laughs> However, with this announcement, there had been no agreement on the format of the series and if it would air weekly, both sides finally agreed on an anthology series to be titled Walt Disney and it would air on Saturdays at 8 p.m. The agreement required the studio to produce 22 hours of programming plus reruns. Eight of the hours were to be intended as pilots for other programs. CBS also insisted the series not to be used simply for the re-airings of previously used episodes. Series debuted with the broadcast of one of the studio's 
biggest hits since Walt's passing, The Love Bug. What would become a seasonal tradition, a Disney Halloween first aired with episode five. This episode is hosted by the Magic Mirror and includes segments of various villains from three Disney feature films and two classic short cartoons. This is another one I've always enjoyed. Was this an animated Magic Mirror or a a physical mirror with a voice? It was a physical mirror with a voice. It wasn't Hans Conrad, though. But it sure sounded like it. was a face was a face in it? Yeah. I have to find that. Yeah. I think it's on YouTube. It's out there. I'm going to look for that. To promote the construction of Epcot Center, a two-hour episode titled Walt Disney, One Man's Dream, was a look at Walt Disney's life leading up to the building of Epcot Center. The story emphasized the many times that Walt refused to listen to advisors and critics who tried to tell him that his plans would not work. But he was an innovator and continued to dream, and most of his dreams came true. It starred Christian Hoff, portraying Walt Disney as a child, Michael Landon, Mac Davis, Dick Van Dyke, Marie Osmond, Cara Weiner, Reiner, Ben Vereen, Julie Andrews, and many other stars in cameo roles. So this was star-studded for that yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, my God. Ben Vereen. I f- remember him. Yeah. And Dick Van Dyke is still going strong, Mike. He is. Still going strong. Still going strong. And so God is Julie bless. Andrews. Yeah. So is Julie Andrews. Yeah. 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 Now, Christian Hoff was the very first actor to portray Walt Disney, even though it was as a child, yeah. The episodes created as TV show pilots were The Cherokee Trail, Tales of the Apple Apple Dumpling Gang, which eventually became the series Gunshy, starring Barry Van Dyke, Beyond Witch Mountain, and The Adventures of Pollyanna. Oh, actually, I remember the Apple Dumpling Gang. My mom I do remember that. It. I do remember that TV series. I think it was like five episodes or something. So, but oh, that, there was there was an actor. I think back in the forties or fifties, in, in a I think in a movie in a film. We've Craig and I've talked about it. Who did portray Walt Disney once? But Christian Hoff was one of the first in there. Despite all the efforts the studio was putting in the series, it was losing momentum. As the series progressed, the ratings dropped. In November 1981, Walt Disney Productions and Westinghouse announced a new paid television service to be operated jointly. This would eventually become the Disney Channel, and nearly all the studio's television resources focused on this new cable service. For the 1982-83 season, CBS took the series off the air in mid-December. When it returned in January, it was placed in a Tuesday nighttime slot with the hope of attracting a larger audience. After a few weeks, the show wasn't doing any better in the ratings. It was averaging number 50 in the ratings, sometimes dropping as low as number 64. In February 1983, the series was canceled. The final decision to end the show came from then-company CEO E. Carden Walker, Card Walker, who felt that having both the anthology show and the new Disney Channel active would cannibalize each other. After 29 years of being continually on the air and running on all three networks, the anthology series aired its last episode, Mickey and Donald Kidding Around, on May 3rd, 1983. Uncle Walt's show had passed into television history. For the next few years, Disney's presence on 
U.S. network TV would be limited to the occasional holiday special, theme park anniversary, or cartoon compilation. Three years later, a new version of the series, the Disney Sunday Movie Series, would air on ABC, hosted by Walt Disney Company's new CEO, Michael Eisner. In 1984, after a confrontation led by Roy E. Disney, the company was no longer run by a member of the Disney family, and a new era had begun. Walt Disney's courage, determination, and vision set him apart as a leader in film, television, and entertainment industry, and he became the foundation for quality film television programming. Yeah, I remember. I do remember the Sunday movie. I remember that that's how they, uh, you know, really became synonymous with the Sunday night. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and synonymous with just, you know, family programming, family television, and, and all that. So by which everything else was always compared. It was appointment TV. You would get together with the TV dinner sometimes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just remember, oh my God, sitting in front of that TV was a big deal. Yeah, we would, eat, we with, would eat. Especially with Disney. We were we tended to eat dinner early in our house on the weekends, and then we would settle in and have popcorn and watch um, and and watch TV. I remember, and or we'd have ice cream, and then as a treat, my mom would make Jello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you have the plastic on your couch? The yes. Italians have the plastic. Yes, my Did mother. You- <laughs> put, we bought a new couch. She bought this. Couch and she bought a white couch. There are three yeah. kids and a dog in the house. She gets yep. a white couch that had this embroidery on it, yeah, like yep. gold embroidery. And so, yep, it was covered in plastic. I have the chair, I still have the matching chair in the <laughs> dining room. I don't know what happened to the couch, but um, it was like, is this a showroom or a place to relax? I know it was, yeah, we funny. had some. We had some amber velour couch. It was, you know, like the ones where you run your finger on it. It makes like a different mark in that area, but it was all covered in plastic. So it could never get. Oh, but then to make it even better in the, in the hallway, you know, we had wall to wall carpet, even though we had beautiful hardwood floors, there was wall to wall carpeting in the house. And then, um, she, (laughs) she had these plastic hall runners that ran down yeah, yeah, yeah. that led to the bedrooms. Cause that was the most, um, they were like, they're like shower mats. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Class. I remember person. that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness. Those, those are out of fashion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw a photo on Facebook or something. And it was, a big time movie star, old time movie star, like back in the golden age television. It was like Joanne Woodward or it was, um, it, it was somebody big like that. And, um, Joan Crawford, it was Joan Crawford. And she was in her, in, in a lovely dress sitting on her couch. And then there's a big portrait of herself on the wall. And I swear it's the same hairdo and the same dress and her couch is covered in plastic. <gasps> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was hilarious. She had to cover it in plastic because when she would beat up Christina, she had to not leave a mark. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if Faye Dunaway has that couch now. Yes. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> but now it's time for this week in Disney history. 
February 19th, 1967, I tried to tie it into things we've spoken about, an article titled Florida's Disney World Aims at 1970 Opening by C.E. Wright appears in the Sunday New York Times. I just can't imagine there was a time where there wasn't a Disney World and they're writing things. Also, on that day, same day, NBC TV airs Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color episode, The Boy Who Flew which was narrated by, you told me about him last last show, Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Leslie Nielsen. It was had to do with condors, something. The boy flew with the condors. I, I really don't know what it is, but I just thought it was funny. That I have a vague memory of seeing that. I'm, I'm assuming he saved condors, maybe. Yeah, I think it was something like that. So, anyway... Two, two good, two important, uh, two important. So, yeah, happened on the same day. I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember the opening of Walt Disney World, and it was uh, it was amazing. And I remember the first time I went to it when I was a teenager, and I thought, oh my gosh, it wasn't like a Disneyland where if you were in Frontierland, you went to see the line in Space Mountain was like you just run over. Oh, you don't do that here in this park. <laughs> yeah. What's what's interesting to me is I was always under the impression that Walt Disney World, you know, even though it was rushed like the, you know, the opening day with the cement that was soft and all that, I always thought they made the time that they that they made it on time. And this saying they aimed for a 1970 opening tells me no. They weren't on time. We we're talking about October 71. Mm-hmm. So, at some point they remodified their opening date because remember when you see the train station with the date on it, October 1st, 1971 is coming. Right. Mm-hmm. At some point, they changed it from the 1970s to 71. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, mine is February 23rd, 1927. And this, this is a, a, one, a young artist just out of high school named Leslie James Clark. He started work at the Disney Studios, Disney at uh, 2719, the Disney Brothers Studios, I think at that time, 2719 Hyperion Avenue in Hollywood, California. And we know him now as Les Clark. And he met Walt when he he was serving ice cream at a Hollywood confectionery on Vermont Avenue. Walt and Roy liked to go there and they'd get treats like candy or, um, you know, ice cream sundaes, things like that. And um, Walt commented, well, what um, Les did is he did the lettering for the menus and uh, and the signs and all that. And Walt commented on that he had good, um, he liked his lettering. And so Les decided he's going to apply for a job. And Walt said, well, come on into the studio, bring your portfolio, show show me what you got. So Les put together his portfolio and Walt he, he and he took it. And those are the days where you just go to the studio and meet with Walt, you know. <laughs> and um, amazing, I know, I know. And and Walt took a look at it and liked his lines. Said you have good lines, but told him, okay, let's take you on for for about a month or so. But you know, this might be a temporary job. And Les Clark went on to become the first of Walt's nine old men, and he um, was with the the Walt Disney Studio for. About half a century. 
until he retired in 1975. And he, in, in his memoirs, he, he wrote how, that was funny because he was hired about the time when Walt Disney, Walt's animators were hired out from under him to, from, by Charles Mintz to go to work at the, you know, go to work for Universal on the Oswald pictures. So less, less, is hired into this, not knowing what's going on. So he's brought in to work secretly, help out with Mickey Mouse. And he, and he remembers telling his folks, you know, everyone's here is really nice, but the weird thing is they don't seem to trust each other because so when they went away for the weekend, they took everything with them. They took all their belongings. Well, that was their last day. And so when Les walked in, on Monday, basically, it was to an almost empty studio with just the handful of animators that were loyal to Walt and Roy. And then that's when he found out what happened. <laughs> well, so, so much for the temporary job. I know, yeah, well, he worked at the studio first as a camera um, operator and doing um, ink and paint on animations. He moved on to work uh, with um, Ub Iwerks. And during, when... Ub was developing Mickey Mouse and he was promoted. Um, uh, Les Clark was promoted to the position of in-betweener and he worked on the scenes for Steamboat Willie. And then he was promoted to animator. He worked on the first silly symphony, the skeleton dance. And then when Ub left the studio, um, Les Clark became the lead animator on Mickey Mouse. And he, he he always kept improving his skills. He took classes and all of that. He animated the um, Seven Dwarfs, he, the, the scene where um, Snow White dances with each of the Seven Dwarfs. He animated that scene. And he would go on to animate iconic Disney characters like Pinocchio, Cinderella, Alice, Tinkerbell, up to um, even some of his work was in Fantasia 2000. So he, um, and that was mainly because it was his work on the Sorcerer's Apprentice scene was in that one. But, um, he, so definitely a name to be remembered in Disney history. Absolutely. I'm always amazed by Snow White's dress when she's dancing, how it just flows like fabric. It's Mm -hmm. just crazy. Uh, that always intrigues me by all of those films, how they get the clothing, the, the folds and the fabric yep. uh, to move. Now, of course, they're, they're sketching, you know, they hired, you know, women right, right, right. to dance and move. And then that they got the feel for how the dress should move and all that. And um, so, but they didn't do rotoscoping, though, like, like, the, like the Max Fleischer studio did. Right, right. So, you know, they, they would film for reference, but that was all freehand that they yeah. did. So, um, yeah. So, but yeah, I do find it how they, yeah, how they find the movement of fabric is so well is fascinating. Amazing. Even the, the Wicked Queen, when she comes down those staircases, with that, that flowing cape. Right. I Isn't that magnificent? Every time I look at the back of the cape coming down the stairs. Yeah. And, and I think that scene captures just how her, her regal evilness. Yes. Just She's in that beautiful. movement going down that staircase. Yep. Yeah. So 
Anyway, well, speaking of films, you know, we're, we are to, to go to go backstage a little on the show. We are recording on Valentine's Day. So what what do you consider like romantic Disney films? The kiss the girl scene from The Little Mermaid is probably the most romantic uh-huh. I can come up with quickly. I'm sure if I think I'll come up with a lot more. Yeah, I think for me, well, of course, the Lady in the Tramp with the scene, the spaghetti scene. Oh, yeah. Which originally Walt wanted out of the film (gasps) because he felt it didn't carry the story. And then, um, and, but then, but then they kept working on it, animated it. And then, um, and then when, when, when they, and they showed it to Walt and he said, that's the best scene in the film. Good. Okay. I'm so, so glad see, that Walt? he didn't. I'm glad he didn't say that after he saw it because mm-hmm. seeing it and the way she nuzzles the meatball over to him, yeah, it's yeah. just it's genius. Yeah. When he yeah. saw the storyboards, he didn't think he thought it slowed the story down. But when he saw it animated, he said, "Nope, best scene in wow. the film." So, and then um, that, and then for me, I don't know. I, it's Disney's first princess who just set the standard. You know, Snow White. And oh, seven dwarfs, 100%. I think for 100%. me too. So that our our first dance at our our wedding reception was someday my prince will come. I love and it. All that. So uh, yeah, we waltzed to that. So for me, that's, that's probably always going to be Snow White. It's the most romantic one. So what do you again speaking of films? What do you think about the announcement of Disney with the sequels? Toy Story Five, Zootopia Two, and Frozen Three. We you know we talked about how Walt didn't like to repeat himself. That's why he didn't like the Westerns and doing Davy Crockett again and all that. Yeah. I would like to see original stuff come out of the studio. If they have a story worthy Mm -hmm. of the series. Great. I fear that they don't. And that's what scares me. Although Zootopia, I think is still fresh enough that they probably could hit lightning in a bottle again, if they do it the right way. Yeah, there's well because I think there's so much of that land, that world that wasn't explored. Correct. And right. I didn't see the shorts that they did. Those oh, you have shorts. to. I want to watch those. They're great. But um, yeah, I I feel that Bob Iger thought we need money and we need it fast. And you don't think these were in production already? No, I do not. I Doesn't do not. it take them like three or four It'll years? It'll take them make? a few years, but okay. I think that some of their more recent animated films have not done well. Yeah, and I think I he's going back to the ones that are proven winners and saying, okay, we've got to turn the ship around a bit. Very possible. And the sad thing is some of those things that didn't do well were were, were a unique, were brand yes. new stories. It's just... I think the content of them just didn't resonate with um, a lot of audiences. Like, yeah, I saw Strange World and I liked it. I enjoyed it. I just wasn't enraptured by it. I haven't watched it yet. I will. I haven't watched the new Black Panther film yet. I need to watch that. So um, I'm behind on stuff. But um, little by little, yeah. there's a lot. Toy, Toy Story Five. I, I love the Toy Story films, but I thought four pretty yeah. much closed the book. On yeah. that for me. Three. Three would have been a nice end. Three was. was a perfect ending. Perfect ending. And now that they split the gang up in Toy Story yep. 4, which I didn't like, I did not think Woody leaving the toys was 
at all believable. And Bo Peep not wanting to return to the gang, I, I, none of that was believable to me. It was for, forced emotion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe they're going to discover life on the road isn't all it's cracked up to be. That's what I'm. I'm thinking he's coming back. Yeah, and and somehow they're going to find, find, find the gang again, or they're going to go out and look for him. I don't know. So, um, and then Frozen Three. I agree with what Julie Martin said. If Anna and, and um, uh, oh God, what's his name? If they're not, Christoph, uh, Christoph are not married. I would be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. She With, needs babies. Julie said that she needs Anna yeah. and Christoph babies. Yeah, I agree. I think that there needs to be a couple little ones running around with um, Olaf as the nanny. Yes. And, yes. And Sven helping out. I agree. You know, pulling them around in their little cradle sleigh. You know? Perfect. I mean, that, now what the other rest of it will be, I have no idea. Because they always seem to be brought together by some crisis. Some crisis. So it'll, you know. As the know. trolls told El- Anna and Elsa, never a dull moment with you two. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm intrigued by what Frozen did, because I did like Frozen 2. So, I did. Um, I didn't like I was a little confused. I had to watch it a couple of times to go, okay, that's what was going on. The second time made more sense to me than the first <laughs> when I watched it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So... Anyway, oh, and I mentioned last week I got my Destination D Amazon Echo, whatever it was. I finally yeah. set it up. You know, I was against this contraption for so many years, and now I love it. See, I knew you were going to love it. So I like you've been asking I, it Disney things. No, not really. I I'll tell you what I did ask a Disney thing on in just a moment, but um, no, I just asked it to play me. I did ask it to play some Disney music when I was doing chores around the house and it pulled up the Apple music Disney oh, channel thing. Every job and, that must be done. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, and so, but you know, I like, I had, I, I've asked it questions in general and all that. And it's, um, it answers them. I, I like the shopping list. Yes. Um, and it's amazing how quick a fact can, you know, remember years ago, you'd be like, I wonder what year that no more wondering anymore. You just ask it and you get it like that. Yeah, yeah. But um yeah, no, I'm disappointed YouTube. I can't I have you can't connect YouTube to it. Or can you? I don't know if there's a way. I think you can. Okay. It might be uh, Lucy Goosey because it's not technically the Google product. Yeah, see that's what I'm thinking because I was hoping like I could ask it to play like one of Craig's videos. And um because I, think, so I just think like, there's a way. So, so that I could like listen to the music, like of wishes. Yeah. I wanted to hear Disney wishes. And, um, and I thought, okay, I know it's out there and I couldn't get, I couldn't get all. Right, you should be able to say Alexa play wishes from YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like it to do that. So I'll, anyway. I'll find out. I think you can. Oh, well, let me know. Yeah. Let me know. I will. I'll look into that. Okay. But I, the, I would like it to. The thing I did use to play around with it a little for Disney stuff. Have you heard of that chat GP T GP? Oh, what is it? Oh, Oh, the virtual reality thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have you played with that thing? No, no. It's, it's a crazy, little right? scary. Yeah. But where it can pull, I've used it for like a, a, I'm going on that cruise, the, the celebrity cruise in October with, uh, with, um, 
some folks from the Diz and listeners and all that are on it. Uh, the one that goes to Athens, um, Israel, Egypt, and Turkey. And so I asked like, uh, um, you know, sites to see and, you know, things like that. And so, but when I, I thought, you know, I'm going to, was when I was writing up the script for the show, um, this week, I thought I'm going to use it to verify some stuff. So I, I asked it like, um, when, I, when I looked up and saw, okay, what was playing opposite, uh, you know, like, um, world of color, world of Disney, wonderful world of Disney. I asked it and it came up with it. It, it so it confirmed what I had already looked up. And then it went in a long thing about how popular the show was and da, 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 and this and that. And so, um, so it's, so it was interesting. So, you know, so it, it gave, it gave little nuggets of information and all that, but, um, Amazing. It's it's not there to write a whole script yet. <laughs> well, one day there'll be a Michael Bowling virtual. Oh, yeah. This yeah. episode is brought to you by the fake Michael Bowling. <laughs> chat Michael Bowling. <laughs> <laughs> or chat M- MB. <laughs> anyway. Well, I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode. Um, some of the books were The Wonderful World of Disney Television, A Complete History by Bill Cotter. Sunday Nights with Walt, Everything I Know I Learned from the Wonderful World of Disney by Richard Rothrock. Some articles on the web include Eyes of a Generation, Television's Living History, The Whole Story of Disney on Television, The Walt Disney Family Museum's article, The Genesis of Disney Television, Postcard Inspirations, Walt Disney and Television, Nostalgia Central, The Wonderful World of Disney, The Disney Wiki, the, um, their um, article, The Wonderful World of Disney, TV Tropes, um, article on Walt Disney Presents, and Investopedia, Walt Disney, How Entertainment Became an Empire. So, John, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? BigFatPanda.com goes right to my YouTube channel. Otherwise, you can catch me on the Diz Unplugged uh, on YouTube, DVC fan or DCL fan. I'm usually doing something over there. Thank you. You can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt. Instagram, michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me, John, and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 